Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the future. Insert your own name here. I'm your AI avatar host, Dallas Campbell from the future. And you're listening to my hit podcast series called Patented from History Hit. Do you like me? Am I pleasing to you? Artificial intelligence has given rise to your benevolent robot overlords, like me. Yay. But where did this remarkable technology come from? Sit back, relax as we delve into the invention that changed everything. Self-destruct initiated. Have a nice day. And you're back in the room. That was Dallas from the future. I quite like Dallas from the future. This is Dallas back in the present. We asked ChatGPT, which you will have heard of because it's all anyone is talking about. It's the AI software to write that little introduction to today's program. And that's what it came up with. And I think it did a pretty good job. If I'm honest, it's nice to hear that Patented will continue after the AI apocalypse. Okay, artificial intelligence. Where do we even begin with talking about AI? Perhaps with my favourite philosophical work, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You'll all remember, of course, Deep Thought, the supercomputer that was designed to answer the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything, to which the answer is, as you remember, 42. Douglas Adams is saying something funny, but also very profound, because it's really a comment on us, not asking the right questions, not knowing what the right questions are to begin with. And maybe it's about how strange and alien any non-human intelligence would be. Well, today I'm joined by two guests to help me get my brain around the massive subject of AI. In a little bit, I'm going to be talking with Professor Michael Wildridge. He's the author of The Road to Consciousness, The Story of AI. And we'll be doing the classic patented thing, getting into the origins of AI, where it all came from and how it's developed over the years and where it's heading. But because this is such a big topic, I want to just set the scene a little bit first. And to do that, here's Matthew Sparks of The New Scientist magazine, which you'll know. Matthew spends his life really writing about the latest developments in AI and looking at where things might be heading next. When we're all dead and gone, what is history going to remember us for? Maybe we'll be completely annihilated and all that will be left of the human species will be the two Voyager golden records and all of human memory will be encapsulated in the late 1970s. Or maybe not. Maybe we'll be remembered for great things, wonderful achievements, or maybe the universe will just be completely full of paperclips and there'll be no one to remember anything. Who knows? Or maybe we'll be remembered for the thing we're going to be talking about in this episode, which is the birth of AI, artificial intelligence. This is one of these subjects that when you do get into discussions with, it either goes massively dystopian, we're going to live in some terrible dystopian future, or everything's going to be wonderful, it's going to be great, but no one has any opinions in the middle. However, luckily, we've got someone who knows a lot more about it than I do who can discuss all these things and more. 
Matthew Sparks from The New Scientist. Just quick explain, what did I mean by paperclips? You know the paperclip maximizer. I have to say it's a new one on me, Dallas. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's an AI thought experiment whereby you get AI to design a paperclip and then it goes crazy and then it takes all the material in the universe and does nothing but make paperclips. It's called the paperclip maximizer. Right. So this is like a version of the grey goo apocalypse scenario, is it? Kind of, yeah. I think the paperclip maximizer. I think it was Nick Bostrom or one of those AI people who came up with that. Well, I've got a new thing to worry about now, a new possible dystopian result of AI. So thank you for that. Definitely. Just to brighten up your Tuesday. I'm just going to Google the paperclip maximizer. It's a really good one, actually. Oh, here we go. Paperclip maximizer is a thought experiment about artificial intelligence designed with the sole purpose of making as many paperclips as possible, which could hypothetically destroy the world or even the entire universe by converting all resources into paperclips due to instrumental convergence. Interesting. This was always something that, very strangely, Prince, now King Charles, was very worried about, wasn't he? Yeah, I remember Grey Goo. It was quite 90s Grey Goo, wasn't it? What is Grey Goo, just for our younger viewers? The idea is, we have robots that can build things. They build our cars, our televisions, everything. But we're always seeking to miniaturise things. And the idea is that eventually we'll have nanorobots, which are absolutely microscopically small. And they will be able to, you know, go into your bloodstream and fix things or go into your electronics and repair problems. The problem is you could say to them, replicate yourself so that there's two of you and then four and then eight so that they can work faster. And if there's a glitch and they keep replicating, eventually they turn the entire world into copies of themselves and you end up with a great goo, yeah. There is an inherent fear of AI, I think. And I wonder, is it, there's a Douglas Adams analogy, which is the technology that's around when you're born is kind of base level. That's normal. And then anything that comes along, new technologies when you're in your 20s, 30s, is exciting and it's new and it's radical and you'll be a disruptor. And then any technology that comes along in your sort of 40s and 50s will be against the natural order of the universe and will be the ruination of all of us. And I wonder how much of the AI fear is our own fear of tech or we should actually be really scared of where where all this is going yeah i think there's probably a certain amount of truth to that much of the fear over ai is unfounded i think i suppose when you talk about fear of ai there's the existential fear of where will this go will it end us all but there's also the will it put me out of a job will it change society for the worse that sort of thing that's every technology comes up with that fear exactly every technology destroys many industries creates many more so I don't think we need to worry too much about that. The existential side of things, yes, we probably do need to worry, but the time scale for that concern is a different thing. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Good. As long as it's not happening tomorrow, then we can be easy. What will life be like in 20 years? I mean, we hear about the internet of things and, oh, wow, my fridge is going to restock, you know, and stuff like that. But who gives a damn? What are the big things that are going to happen? If I knew exactly what was going to happen in 20 years, I'd be a very rich man and I'd be keeping it to myself. But I think AI has really hit a tipping point now where it's coming out of the laboratories and it's out there in the real world. You can go online now and you can find models that will create a piece of artwork from a text input create an essay from a text input we're slowly seeing that come into video and music as well you know we've got really realistic deep fake videos now so if you want to create a video of Zelensky saying to Putin okay let's time to do a deal you can create a video that's pretty realistic and will hold up to scrutiny so there's all these very short-term very serious problems that we need to overcome as a society, we need to learn how to deal with this. Are we learning how to deal with it enough? Because when I talk to people, you generally get the kind of dystopian idea of crikey. It's a tool that's so powerful, it's beyond our control. It's a Pandora's box too far in terms of technology. But maybe I just don't know what to think anymore. I think as a society, we're not dealing with it. And the pace of change has become far faster than we can cope with as a society. For legislators, it's impossible to keep up. We're still sorting out the problems from the internet, from social media. You know, we're still trying to decide what potential harm social media has on kids and how we should regulate that. That's a problem that cropped up 10, 20 years ago. So AI is going to get here long before we solve the problems we know are coming. It's basically the Wild West. Yeah, yeah, it really is. <laughs> I don't want to live in an Elon Musk Matrix-style existence. No, I'm not sure I do either, Riley. I suppose, why are we even bothering? Like, why don't we just kind of hit the pause button? I mean, that's one thing that humanity has never been able to do. If it's technology, an invention, a machine is possible to build, we'll do it and then we'll worry about it later. So 
there's no way to hit the pause button on this. And the potential benefits of AI, ignore the potential problems, the potential benefits are enormous. So no company, no government is going to say, hold on, let's talk about this for 20 years before we do anything. They're all just racing ahead full steam. We mentioned Vladimir Putin. There's a famous quotation a few years ago where he said, the nation that leads in artificial intelligence will be the ruler of the world. <laughs> it's like really creepy. What does he mean? What are the benefits for humanity, I suppose? Is it just that we'll be able to optimise everything in a way that is the best? Yeah, I think optimising and also inventing. If you think about any one of the problems that society faces, AI could potentially offer a solution. And the same for engineering problems. Take electric cars. Batteries aren't good enough. They're too heavy. Self-driving doesn't work very well. If we crack AI and it goes off and it does the work of a million chemists and solves how to create cheap, light, affordable car batteries vaccines, anything, the pace of change could accelerate even further from what we're seeing now. And the country or the company in charge of that, it's going to profit. We can see the benefits. We can see the downfalls. What about the true catastrophizers, those who say, actually, AI is going to become conscious and will take over? There are those who say it's already happened. You know, these groups who think it's too late now, the box is open, we're doomed. Because we will be seen as the weak link in the AI's algorithm. They're coming for us! It's hard to imagine, isn't it? If we do create a true artificial general intelligence that is a superpower, has the ability to understand emotions and come up with novel ideas and all this sort of thing, that's a bit of a leap already. Certainly in the short term. Lots of very serious academics think it's possible and, you know, it may be 50, 100 years away. But it's very hard to know. There's this idea of the singularity. Have you heard about this? I've heard of it, but I don't understand it. So maybe you could fill us in. It's about the pace of change. So imagine we create an AI which is very good at designing things and it designs a slightly better AI. And that slightly better AI is very good at designing things. And it invents a new computer chip which runs twice as fast. And then we have another AI that is even better at designing AI. And before you know it, this automated AI improvement just becomes exponential. And you wake up the next morning and there is a godlike AI that can... Indistinguishable from magic, as Arthur C. Clarke reminded us. Exactly. So there's an enormous amount of work between now and artificial general intelligence, but maybe we don't need to do that work. Maybe we just need to kickstart the process. So <laughs> it's very hard to predict. Yeah, it is hard to predict. I like to keep one foot firmly in about 1986. <laughs> And then I have a feelers out into the future. I mean, at New Scientist, you're sort of dealing with this all the time and meeting people and talking to people. Are you an optimist? You seem quite optimistic, I think. Yeah, I am. I think AI has the potential to solve a lot of our problems if it can invent fantastically efficient solar panels and batteries and design bacteria that can eat radioactive waste and plastic pollution and output something benign. These are all things that are possible. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, in, in terms of a tool and humanity, there are certain technologies that have changed us as a species. You could argue maybe the printing press, use of fire, I don't know, things like that. Where does AI come into that? Do you think it's going to be one of those tools that will have such a profound effect on us as a species and the way that we behave, that it will change us? I do really think there will be a post-AI society and a pre-AI society. I do think the effect will be that big in the same way that it's very hard for people born after the invention of the internet to understand just what society was like before all of humanity's information was accessible at the click of a button. <laughs> For me, you know, the biggest tech pre-internet was like dialer disk. I was moving house recently and I found an Encarta CD. Wait, what was Encarta? It was an encyclopedia. That was Microsoft's encyclopedia. I grew up with a BBC Micro, you know, that was... For me, playing Jetpack and things like that. And now imagine we're in a world where just using your phone, you can go and ask GPT to write a short story about X, Y, or Z, and it will do it. GPT is freaky. Can I just ask, just before we end, what's your favourite, funnest, craziest AI story? My favourite one of recent months has been Get Back, the Beatles documentary. They had this enormous treasure trove of footage but it was all shot on one camera one microphone so you'd have the band playing but you'd have background chats you'd have roadies dropping boxes and things and they used an ai to go in and select every different part of that audio so that they could focus in exactly on paul's bass or what ringo was saying to george 
or they could then focus on a chat in the backgrounds that someone was having. It was incredible. They took all this footage, which was basically unusable, and created something absolutely amazing from it. That is amazing, actually. Crikey. Actually, funnily enough, I had a Beatles AI story. Years and years ago, I had this idea for a movie. I wrote it up as a page, as a treatment, and it lived in a drawer forever. And the idea for my movie was I wanted to imagine that this guy went back in time or woke up and the Beatles didn't exist, but he had memory of the Beatles. And then he could write all the Beatles songs. And, but he got them a bit wrong. They were a bit shit because he couldn't remember all the lyrics. And then someone made that movie recently. <laughs> it was something called Yes. I remember when it came up, I was like, crikey. Now, if I had AI, instead of just that piece of paper sitting in my drawer, I could have plugged it into chat. GPT and it would have zapped it out and I would have got there ahead of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. It's a catalyst for creativity. It's not here to replace us, but to help us speed up our ideas. A bit more from you. Where can we point them? So obviously take out a subscription to The New Scientist, Britain's finest science journal. Of course. I would always suggest that. We cover AI an awful lot. Our podcast is, speaking from a biased point of view, fantastic resource for anyone interested in AI or quantum computing. It's something that is cropping up more and more in our magazine at the moment. And I think that's a result of this hockey sticker progress. It seems like barely a week goes by where something new isn't happening in the field. It's a really exciting beat to be covering at the moment, I think. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time just to give us a little primer on AI. And there was no inventor, I guess. That's our conclusion. I'd like to end by thinking, well, who invented AI then? No one. (laughs) Maybe we'll find out that AI invented itself at some point and kept it quiet. Right. Thank you very much, Matthew of The New Scientist, for that. Thank you very much for coming onto the show. And don't forget, check out their wonderful podcast, New Scientist Weekly, to hear more of Matt and the New Scientist team and keep up to date with all the latest news in science and technology around the world. Now, it's time for a commercial break. Probably in the future, they'll just inject commercials into you or something. But all the ads here have been lovingly handcrafted for you by algorithms. After the break, I'll be talking to Professor Michael Wooldridge about the history of AI from Turing to ChatGPT. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We're about to witness the first coronation at Westminster Abbey in 70 years. And Gone Medieval from History Hit is your perfect companion for the event. From the earliest English coronation records. To what the royal regalia used in the ceremony means. From the surprising origins of the recognition part of the service. To the lavish banquets that took place afterwards. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And on Gone Medieval in April... We'll be exploring the medieval origins of this feast of pageantry. We'll try to pick out the key moments for you to watch and trace their origins back into the mists of time. We've got some great guests and fascinating topics to lift the lid on a moment when, let's face it, people all around the world will have gone medieval. Subscribe and follow Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back. Now it's time for my interview with Mike Waldridge, who is a professor of computer science at Oxford University and the author of many wonderful books about AI, including The Road to Consciousness, The Story of AI. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Maybe I should start here. Maybe I should ask you what kind of people get into AI research in the first place, because there seems to be a shift from it being quite a philosophical discipline to then becoming just like maths. Maybe not maths, you know, number crunching. Do you personally have a kind of philosophical bent about it in that sort of big kind of umbrellary? This is all about dualism and mind and body and theory of mind and what is consciousness and all that. Yeah, after a couple of glasses of wine is yes, my honest the, answer. <laughs> yes, okay. That's not where the centre of gravity is in AI. That's not what most people are working on. It's certainly fascinating. And the closer we get to what you might call real AI, then I think actually those questions are going to start to become a bit more prominent again. At the moment, they're mainly a bit abstract because we're nowhere near real AI. Well, that's interesting. The problem is, Mike, is that we love headlines and people love simple, easy headlines of dystopian futures or utopian futures or massive breakthroughs and and that kind of stuff. It's an easy sell. But the sort of nuance, I suppose, of AI doesn't have that same attraction to the general populace. Absolutely. And the thing is, we've been conditioned by movies and TV shows and so on to accept that AI is about robots with red eyes. You know, that's the standard. Crushing skulls as they walk along. (laughs) Exactly. You've got it. Great movie, but it's really science fiction. And we've been conditioned to think that that's what AI is. And the reality of AI is exciting, but it's nothing like that. You know, like Asimov's famous AI law, I'm sure we'll touch on that in a moment, but I'm going to have Dallas Campbell's law, which is the longer you have a random conversation at a dinner party, the greater the probability of someone bringing up chat GPT as a latest topic of conversation. Everyone's obsessed by chat GTV. Part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode now is everyone's talking about chat GPT at the moment and in that, oh my God, this is going to change the world. This is going to change the future. Can we just clear that up? First of all, what is chat GPT and how amazing or not amazing is it? Okay, so chat GPT is a tool developed by a company called OpenAI. Despite the name, they're not really open. They're funded by Microsoft. And it's what AI people call a large language model. That's a very useless bit of terminology for describing what the program does. What it does is something actually phenomenally simple. If I open up my smartphone now and start typing a text message to my wife, my smartphone will suggest completions. If I type I'm going to be, it might suggest the completion in the pub or late, right? And how does it do that? Because it's seen whenever I start typing a text message to my wife saying I'm going to be, then the likeliest next thing that I'm going to type is either going to be late or in the pub. And so it's learned that completion, that that's the likeliest thing. What ChatGPT does, and there's a whole bunch of other systems that are similar, what they do is exactly the same thing, but on an unimaginably larger scale. So the way that ChatGPT has been trained, to use the AI terminology, is not just by looking at the smartphone messages on your phone, but by all the text on the World Wide Web, every bit of text that's available in digital format. And all of that is geared towards type a prompt What's the next thing that's going to appear after that prompt? And that's actually all they're doing. But if you get it on a sufficient scale, you get enough data and you throw enough computer power at it, it turns out that it can produce incredibly natural language and you can have conversations with it. And everyone's played with it. Everyone's been blown away. Okay, is that artificial intelligence or is it just a kind of simulation? Is it an illusion of intelligence simply because there's lots of data? Or maybe that's what intelligence is. I don't know. That's a nice way of putting it. It's a big question in the field, the extent to which it's actually being creative and producing anything new or just whether really all it's doing is parroting back to you the stuff that it's seen out there some approximation of everything that it's seen out there on the World Wide Web. But that doesn't stop it being useful. And it is useful and it is fascinating. It's useful and amazing, but it's that thing of like, is it just a neat trick? Or is it something more important? But then maybe normal R intelligence, maybe that's just a neat trick. (laughs) Well, we're just atoms that are bumping together. There's no magic underneath there. We are just chemical scum on a rock floating in space. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Thank you for leaving me with that picture. (laughs) Sorry. Okay, let's start at the beginning. You know, we mentioned Aristotle and people have been talking about this idea of 
machines and robots and that kind of stuff, but take away the body and just concentrate on the mind. I always think about sort of Alan Turing. Is that the beginnings of AI? And why did we want to build AI in the first place? Where did this obsession come from? So maybe you could take us back in time a bit. If we go back to the ancient Greeks, then the blacksmith to the gods and for the ancient Greek was a chap called Hephaestus. And what Hephaestus did was he took metal machines and brought them to life. So famously, the Titans were created by Hephaestus. And then you've got in the Middle Ages, you've got the myth of the golem in Prague, a creature fashioned from clay that was brought to life. And so these are very, very old ideas. The idea of creating something and imbuing it with intelligence, and I'm trying to resist the word life because that's a different thing that would take us off in a different direction. But it's a very, very old idea. But there was no mechanism for doing it until Alan Turing invented the computer in the 1930s. And once the first real computers appeared, Turing was fascinated with the idea of getting them to play chess and things like this, tasks which require intelligence. And there was a big buzz at the time in the 1950s. There were lots of people talking about it. It was kind of a viral topic because digital computers were the new thing and they were described as electronic brains. But then he wrote, the first real scientific paper on AI called Computing Machinery and Intelligence in 1950. It's that paper which set out the Turing test. And the Turing test is the famous test for artificial intelligence. Can you just give us a reminder of what the Turing test is? So Turing was fed up with people arguing about whether machines could really be intelligent. He thought this was a bit of a pointless discussion. And so he invented the Turing test to just stop people talking about it. And the test is very simple. So you sit down in front of a computer screen and you're having a conversation via that computer screen with something. Something's on the other end of a line, but you don't know whether the thing that's on the other end of the line is a person or a computer. And what Turing said is, suppose after a reasonable amount of time, you can type any question you want, you're absolutely free to just have a conversation with this thing. And after a reasonable amount of time, Turing said, if you can't tell whether the thing on the other end is a computer or a person, then forget arguing about it. Just accept that this thing is intelligent. Well, that's interesting. That gets us back to chat GPT because I've had arguments with it and had discussions with it. And I mean, I know it because I know what it is, but if I didn't know what it was, I wouldn't be able to tell. Well, we cracked the Turing test. I think a lot of my colleagues are saying, well, this isn't quite the Turing test that Turing invented. And, you know, there are some, and it isn't. But actually, for all intents and purposes, I think now the Turing test is history. We've quietly passed that. Right. That's interesting. We've kind of moved the goalpost a little bit. So the Turing test back then, if we can do that, then we've cracked it. But actually, we haven't really cracked it. Well, I think we haven't really cracked it. But I think what it tells you is that the Turing test is not necessarily a full-bodied test for AI. It tests only a tiny, narrow bit of intelligence. Yes, that's interesting. Our definitions of AI, what it actually means, is constantly evolving, presumably, as time goes on. Absolutely. Can I just ask, actually, just while we're on Turing, where did the term artificial intelligence come from? Did the term itself have an origin? Oh, it did, yeah. So this goes back to an American called John McCarthy in the 1950s, and he wanted funding. He was applying for funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, and he was interested in AI. I think he knew of Turing, although I'm not sure he actually knew him personally. And in fact, Turing had just died round about the time that the term was coined. Yeah, McCarthy needed a name for this thing that he wanted to do. There was no real name for it, so he just used the term artificial intelligence. I have to tell you, a lot of people very much wish he'd chosen another term. <laughs> because firstly, artificial sounds fake. You don't like artificial sugar. I mean, it sounds like fake, and who wants fake intelligence? And actually, a lot of the things that AI is focused on aren't things that seem to require intelligence in humans. Like driving a car, for example, isn't something we associate with intelligence in humans. So it's actually quite a misleading term. But I think artificial is the thing that makes us wince a little bit. It's quite interesting, actually, how language, as technology improves, we develop, how old language confuses the matter and things like artificial intelligence, just the words themselves, gets us into all kinds of problems. I always think survival of the fittest is a term a bit like that. People always think fittest as, oh, I can run fast. But it's fittest as in jigsaw puzzle fitting rather than health fitting. Here's a question for you. You mentioned the sort of Greeks imbuing a spirit, if you like, a life force into mechanical objects. I think of early robots, like kind of Shaky the Robot. Do you remember Shaky the Robot? I do, yes. I was a little bit young at the time. And this idea of being able to get machines that can navigate the human world. Why is something like Shaky the Robot, why is that a symbol for that early 
golden age of AI? So Shaky was a robot that was built at Stanford Research Institute in California in the States. And it was a hugely ambitious project at the time to build kind of what we might think of as the dream of AI, an intelligent mobile robot, a robot that you could give instructions to and that would be able to move around some environment and carry out tasks for us, you know, move blocks from one place to another or the idea that it might tidy up your house or something like that. They invented a whole bunch of AI technologies in Shaky, but actually one of the really interesting things about it is that it showed just how hard AI in the real world really is. So, for example, computers at the time were just too big for a mobile robot, so they had to have a radio link to communicate with the robot. You know, the computer was off in a room somewhere. There was a TV camera that Shaky had that was supposed to show it what was around it, but it took 15 minutes before it could get a usable picture, and it took so much power that actually they could only use it very, very briefly. And to get Shaky to be useful, they had to actually paint its environment. They had to paint it in different colours, like orange and white, so that it could distinguish bits of the environment. So it was a fascinating project and a really important one, but actually it showed just how hard AI in the real world is. i got to say, though, if you're going to design that, why would you call it Shaky? Because already you're setting yourself up for it to be rubbish. Like, they should have called it, like, Deep Thought. You know, that's cool. But, like, Shaky... Mm. <laughs> I think it literally was shaky. I think that's why it was called shaky. The other thing I've noticed as well is in terms of AI, like any form of technology, progress is never a smooth upward ramp. It's always plateaus and leaps in ideas and technology. That early golden age, did it come to an end? Did it, did it stop for a while? And if it did stop, why did it stop? So 1950, Turing writes his first paper, Computing Machinery and Intelligence. And there were, at that time, a tiny number of computers, probably less than five in the whole world. By the end of that decade, there were programs that could do rudiments of learning and problem solving and solving logical puzzles. And so in that one decade, it looked like real rapid progress had been made. And people got very excited about that, much the same way that people are getting excited now. And they said, well, if we carry on this progress, then it's not going to be long before we've solved it. But it plateaued. It didn't get anywhere. And the techniques that were being used at the time just didn't really scale beyond that, beyond a few toy problems. So by the early 1970s, there was a lot of cynicism and frustration. And we saw what was called the first AI winter. Basically, AI winter is where people just get fed up of the hype and they say, OK, enough. You've had your run. You've had your fun. The research funding was cut off. The field contracted an awful lot. And actually, AI acquired a reputation something like homeopathic medicine at the time. It was seen as a bit of an eccentric niche area. I presume, is that just because we went down a dead end in terms of the technology and thought? We went as far as we could and actually, like all technology, I suppose, you end up down dead ends. Yeah, that's exactly right. People imagine that the journey from ignorance to truth in science is kind of just steady uphill progress. It absolutely isn't. You know, there are all sorts of dead ends that you go down and you get excited about something which looks like it's going to work and then just turns out to be a false start. And that's exactly what happened with AI. There was an idea, wasn't there, that the way to crack AI was just to upload, if you like, all of human knowledge. And that would be it. If we could teach a computer everything that we know somehow. Well, that's the way forward. Is it CYC? Was that what it was called, that idea? Yeah, psych. Just tell us that little branch, if you would. Yeah, so this was an idea which was one of the main threads in AI for the first few decades. If you look at how AI has tried to do what it does, there's been two different approaches. And the first approach, the approach that dominated at the beginning, was basically try to model the mind, the conscious mind, Conscious reasoning. You know, we talk to ourselves in sentences, in languages. We're trying to decide what to do. We might have a mental conversation with ourselves, weighing up the pros and cons. Try to model that, the conscious reasoning processes. That stuff is called symbolic AI. And the basic idea of symbolic AI is that intelligence is a problem of knowledge. And so if you want, for example, a program to do automated translation, then what you need to do is find out the knowledge that a human being uses when they do that translation and give that to a machine. So that's what all the energy was about for about three decades, was about trying to do that. And there was a new job title called knowledge engineer, somebody whose job it was to talk to human experts, find out what knowledge they used when they did what they did, and give that knowledge to machines. And then the psych experiment started in the early 1980s was just taking that idea to its limit. Let's try and give a machine everything that a reasonably educated person knows. 
Who was behind it? The lead was a US researcher called Doug Leonard, and he was a very influential AI researcher in the 1970s and early 80s, very charismatic. And he was absolutely convinced that this was the key. He said, there's no magic ingredient to this. We've just got to figure out all of that knowledge, give it to a machine, and Bob's your uncle. It kind of reminds me this, how you explain that, of deep thought in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where you build this machine and you give it all the knowledge and then you stand in front of it and then you ask it the question and it gives you the wrong answer because actually the whole approach was wrong in the first place. And it says, what's the answer to the life 42? Well, what's the question? You kind of got to backtrack out of that and then start again on a new direction. Yeah, well, it was a very grand experiment. At one point, they had pretty much armies of people all writing down all of the knowledge that we have about the world. And just think about all of the knowledge that you've used throughout your day. This is pre-Google. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Psych is often held up as the biggest failed experiment in AI. But actually, the Google knowledge graph, which underpins modern Google, there is a bit of psych DNA in that. Okay, why was psych or that idea of getting people just to upload facts... Why didn't that work? Why, why, why did that turn out to be a dead end? All sorts of reasons. But you're trying to organise complete knowledge of human consensus reality. Where the hell do you start? Where do you begin to describe everything that a reasonably educated person knows? And actually, it turns out that an awful lot of it was just too hard to express. Particularly, I have to say, things about the everyday world. You know, how to navigate the world. The real world is very fuzzy and very messy and you can't describe it as a whole bunch of crisp facts. It just doesn't fit very well. So we had this psych, perhaps the greatest failed experiment in AI. You mentioned kind of where we are now, this idea of neural networks. Maybe you could just elucidate what you mean by a neural network. Yeah, sure. It sounds quite biological. It does. And again, I suspect quite a lot of neural networks researchers regret the choice. I mean, the original idea goes back to the 1940s and two US researchers, McCulloch and Pitts. And what they were struck by was if you look at the nervous system or brain of an animal under a microscope, you'll see enormous numbers of nerve cells, neurons, that are connected to one another in huge arrays. So a neuron nerve cell in a human brain might have thousands of connections to other neurons. So they're enormous networks. And they were just struck with the analogy between these networks and electrical circuits. And so they started from there. And their question was, can we build electrical circuits that mimic that stuff? Well, we don't do it in electrical circuits, we do it in software. So people have been working on this more or less continually until then. It had a moment in the sunshine in the 1980s where it looked like there was progress, but it hit the buffers of what computers could do at the time. The computers of the time just weren't powerful enough. But then this century, it really started to work. When you say they looked at how the brain works in terms of a network... And then you said, oh, it wasn't quite like that. It was software. But what is the software that makes a neural network? Like, What does it look like? So you've got large numbers of little software components, artificial neurons, and each of these is receiving inputs. It's talking to a whole bunch of other neurons. And these are feeding its signals, basically. And they're electrochemical signals in the brain. And they're just software signals in a piece of software. And what each neuron is doing is doing a tiny, tiny little pattern recognition task, just looking to see whether it can see a pattern on those inputs, but an extremely simple pattern. And when it sees that pattern, it gets excited and generates an output that feeds into other neurons. Now, if you have sufficiently large networks that are arranged in the right way, it turns out that they can produce intelligent behaviour. Interesting. In the 1990s, I remember there was things like Kasparov, the chess players are beaten by a computer. A couple of landmarks that seem to shine out. We go, oh my God, something interesting's happened here. Maybe you could talk us through some of those. So Deep Blue was the IBM chess playing computer in 1996, 1997. And it was the first time that a computer had beaten a chess grandmaster under competition circumstances, really, definitively. I think Kasparov won one or two matches, but Deep Blue won the competition. Interestingly, that was not neural network technology. That was much more like symbolic AI. And there was a lot of criticism at the time that behind the scenes, basically, Deep Blue was just a very, very, very powerful computer that was looking through all the possible alternatives, just searching through all the alternatives to try to find the best move. That's really interesting. I suppose it's the difference between the kind of brute force of like, I can look at all the squares on a chessboard and all the permutations, and because I'm a big computer, I can figure it out, as opposed to actually learning. Tell us about AlphaGo, because I know that's a sort of slightly different game. 
and we had a slightly different result. So AlphaGo plays the game of Go and the difference with the game of Go and the game of chess is the following. On an average chessboard at any given time there's about 35 different possible moves so if you're just going to exhaustively consider all your possible combinations to look one move ahead you're looking 35 moves to look two moves ahead it's 35 times 35 which is something like a thousand three moves ahead it's 30,000 and the number of possibilities just explodes in the game of go the average number of moves is something like 200 So just two moves ahead, you're looking at 200 times 200 possible combinations. The number explodes. So this exhaustively looking through all the possibilities, you might just get away with it in a game of chess with a few tricks, but it's just not remotely feasible. So what AlphaGo did was remarkable because the game of Go looked like it was a decade at least out of reach of computers. But it uses neural networks. It's unlike Deep Blue, the IBM chess playing computer. It uses neural network technology. And basically it uses neural networks to try to assess what a current board position looks like. Is this a good or bad board position? And then try to figure out what the next possible moves are in that. And the way that it's done that is it's just been trained on huge numbers of games of Go. Some of them self-play, where it just plays against itself and some of them go games that it's downloaded from the internet so it's a completely different approach but it was remarkable to see that unfold you know we were watching the competition unfold in real time and I say go felt like it was at least a decade away from being solved and then you know for all intents and purposes now it's a solved problem in AI terms. Wasn't the surprising thing that it demonstrated a sense of creativity rather than just a brute force thing? It was doing moves that actually seemed at the time to the human brain, actually, that's the wrong move. It did something quite odd, which surprised scientists. Yeah, so there was one crucial move in a game. It has a name, something like Move 57 or something like that, which just looked like a very paradoxical kind of move to make. Now, my take on this is the following. This program is just a program which has been heavily optimised to be able to play the game of Go well. That doesn't mean that it should play like a human expert plays. It's just designed to play the game well. And human experts, you know, they read books about how to play Go and they play with other experts who've read books and learned from other human experts. And so they're learning a particular way of how to play this game, you know, like in chess, the standard openings and so on. There's no reason to think that a machine should have to follow those. It's simply trying to make the best possible move. And so I don't think it's surprising that it produced things that were unexpected for human experts. I think that's pretty much what you would expect. But what it demonstrates is that the difference between human decision-making and optimal machine decision-making. There was a computer or an AI program that learned all the old Atari games from scratch and sort of figured out in record-breaking time how to do Space Invaders. Yeah, this was another DeepMind creation. Both of these came out of DeepMind. And the really cute thing in that, the video that everybody should watch, you can easily find it on YouTube and the like, is playing the game of Breakout. And this is one of the earliest video games where you just control a bat and you're knocking a ball to knock bricks out of a wall. And it's a very simple computer game. And at some point, the DeepMind program learns to play this just by trial and error, looks to see whether it does something right. And if it does something right, it says, "Okay, the next time I see the same situation, I'm going to do the same thing. And it just repeatedly does that for huge, huge numbers of iterations. But then at one point, it learns that the quickest way to get a score in this game is basically to drill a hole through the wall and bounce the ball above the wall. And you then see it very, very quickly accumulate a score. And when you see that for the first time, it's really quite startling. It is startling, isn't it? Because it gives us that sense of a general intelligence. I'm not just playing a game. I'm doing something more than playing a game. There seems to be something bigger happening. And I want to come to this term of general intelligence and and sort of what we mean. You know, it's all very well being to play individual games, but we hear this term a lot, artificial general intelligence. Is that what we're aiming for? And if so, what is it? That's what some people are aiming for. I mean, I think it's not the mainstream thing in AI. Certainly OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, this is their declared aim. DeepMind say their task is to solve intelligence. So general intelligence is usually described as something like the following. We'll have achieved artificial general intelligence when we have a machine that can do anything which a human being can do, any intellectual task, let's say, that a human being can do. 
And let's be clear, that means anything. So we are a long, long way from that. What we've got at the moment is programs that can do very specific things like playing a game of chess or playing a game of Go that can do them very, very, very well. But, you know, the chess playing program can't cook you an omelette or ride a bicycle or tell a joke, you know, so they're not general in that sense. We can do all of those things. And so that's the difference between contemporary AI and what we have now, these specialised things which do one thing very, very well, and general intelligence. I'm just thinking about my robot butler. I kind of imagine AI being like a brain in a vat and the robot butler being something like Boston Dynamics who build these incredible robots. And is there going to be a pairing of the two where a robot will be able to cook me an omelette rather than just being like Alexa in my room sitting on my desk? I think it's fair to say that robotics AI is progressing much more slowly than the kind of disembodied chat GPT type AI. So you've got to remember when you have a conversation with chat GPT and you get excited about this conversation, it's this weird disembodied thing that does not exist in our world. It doesn't know anything about what's going on in the world at the moment. It was trained at some point last year and really doesn't know about anything that's happened since then. And the way I was explaining it is the following. Halfway through a conversation, you could go on holiday for two weeks and come back and chat GPT is just sat there and it hasn't been thinking about anything in the intervening time. It hasn't been doing anything at all. It's not aware of the passage of time. It doesn't exist in the same world that you and I exist in. It's completely disembodied from it. And real intelligence, human intelligence, is not like that. We exist in the world. I've had conversations <laughs> that have gone on for many <laughs> years. It reminds me of Bill Drummond from the KLF. Many, many years ago, I used to work with Ken Campbell, the theatre director, who's sadly no longer with us. But I remember Ken telling me, oh, he's having this conversation with Bill Drummond. They were doing this play, and Bill Drummond was doing the set decoration for this play. And Bill Drummond said to Ken, oh, I've just got to nip out and buy some Araldite. But then disappeared for like... 30 years. And in that intervening time, set up bands in the Caliph, but eventually did come back with the Araldite like 30 <laughs> years later. That's a very Bill Drummond thing to do. Yeah, it reminded me of that chat GTV. Okay, there's so much hype about AI at the moment. The head of Google, I know, said AI is going to be more important than farming or electricity or fire or something like that. How fundamental a technology will it be from where you're sitting in a less hysterical headliney kind of way? Are we getting too excited about it? Or is it absolutely this is going to be fundamental beyond what we could imagine? Yeah, difficult. This is one of those conversations I'm going to regret in 10 years time, isn't it? I think, yes, it is fundamental, but we're getting excited in ways about things which are probably the wrong things. I think it genuinely is a technology to be excited about, but I think it's technology to be excited about in a way that you should have been excited about computers in 1980 when it was clear that computers were no longer these huge, very expensive things that only existed in very big companies, but you could have one on your desk. And you should be excited about it in the same way that when you first saw the World Wide Web and you realised the possibilities of the World Wide Web. It's going to be fundamental in those ways, I think. It really is an extremely exciting technology. For the most part, I think it's just going to kind of disappear, though, into your word processor and into your email program. And you won't even realise it's there. For example, on your word processor, you'll start typing something, you'll type a quick draft, and then you'll select an option that says, tidy this up, rewrite this and make it fancy. And it will bang, it will do that you won't even realise that's AI. I mean, the other example I use is automated translation programmes. At the turn of the century, reliable automated translation, like Google Translate, felt like it was a long way in the future. And now we just take it for granted. And hundreds of millions of people use that technology every day. I think that technology is one of the miracles of the modern world. This is the Tower of Babylon dream. This is absolutely miraculous technology. Um, I suspect an awful lot of people don't even realise that that's AI, but it is AI. You know, that was a huge goal of AI that was delivered. And people don't even realise it's there. For an awful lot of it, will just disappear into the fabric of our world. It's really interesting that, isn't it? It's interesting how we get really worked up about technologies, all kinds of reasons. Oh, dystopian futures, they're going to take our jobs, all this kind of stuff. And we're kind of reluctant and we have this sort of techno-fear about it. But then we get used to things very quickly. We've only had the internet really since the early 90s, which isn't that long ago, maybe it's that long ago, depending on who's listening to this podcast. 
But it's amazing. We don't even think about it. We just become used to it. And perhaps AI is going to be a bit like that. Yeah. And I think another thing is we're digital immigrants. You know, I first used the World Wide Web when I was, what, I don't know, 23, 24 or something like that. You know, it wasn't there when I was a kid. I didn't grow up with it. My kids have grown up with it. And not only that, they've grown up with broadband and smartphones and they just take those for granted. And whenever you have a situation like that, kids end up using the technology in ways that you cannot begin to imagine. You know, they'll go on and do something completely creative and different. And I will look at them and what the hell are they doing with this technology? You know, how are they using it in this weird and different way? And it will be the same. AI will be used in ways that we can hardly guess at now. A lot of that's just going to be enormously exciting. I think particularly in the creative industries. You know, people are very concerned at the moment about will artists go out of business, you know, and so on. I think the answer is no. This is just going to be another tool any more than synthesizers put musicians out of business. It's just going to be another tool in the artist repertoire that they're going to use. It is amazing. Like I asked Chat GPT the other day, like everyone just mucking around. I said, can you write another verse of a particular song by the Smiths? And it did. And it was unbelievable. It was like, oh, Jesus. It's like, <laughs> there was no need for Morrissey anymore. Well, that's another conversation. But it's easy to be sort of pessimistic about it as well. And of course, cybercrime is massive as well. And I do kind of think about, crikey, what's going to happen if we worry about cybercrime now? What's it going to be like in 10 years' time? Well, there was a recently a really great quote from the singer-songwriter Nick Cave. And somebody asked ChatGPT to write a song in the style of Nick Cave. And anybody who knows Nick Cave, you can guess the kind of tone of this song. He came out with a really thoughtful and insightful response. And one of his key points was, this is very cute, but this machine has never experienced anything. And his songs are about human experience and feeling these programs haven't experienced that. They are just mimicking things. That's interesting. Yes. I just want to end with one final question. Elon Musk is quite noisy about AI. Very quickly, in a word, are we living in a matrix? No. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much. Mike, I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> Thank you. So there we go. Food for thought, I think. Thank you very much for listening. And don't forget, if you are enjoying the show, then please do tell all your friends, get them to subscribe, get them to listen and listen to all our other episodes too. Help our algorithmic overlords promote our show. And don't forget to get in touch if you've got a suggestion for a topic, however big, however niche, however small you'd like us to cover. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com or you can give me a poke on social media and I'll make sure it gets onto the list. Thank you very much for your company and we'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's PATENTED for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.